One more item. Here's something a lot of us have in common. Broken appliances. Broken air conditioner. Broken down heating system. Broken down washer dryer. Broken down refrigerator. And if you're a homeowner, you know just how expensive it is to get one of those things fixed, let alone what happens if more than one appliance breaks down at the same time. Well, if you're a homeowner, you can get all of your appliances on a warranty plan that guarantees protection for all of your home appliances in case they break down. And best of all, it will only cost you about a dollar a day. Call the Home Service Club at 800-264-3168, 800-264-3168. The call is free, and if you're one of the first 25 callers, your first month membership in the Home Service Club will also be free. Home Service Club, warranty plan, Guarantees protection for all of your appliances for less than a dollar a day. 800-264-3168. 800-264-3168. Hi, this is John Barber, and you're listening to TV Confidential. At Robertson Long, Tony Figueroa, Donna Allen, and our guest, Stan Goldman. Stan Goldman, tenured law professor at Loyola Law School, founding director of the Loyola Center for the Study of Law and Genocide, and a longtime legal analyst for many national radio, TV, and print outlets, including Fox News Channel, CNBC, and CBS Radio. Stan is with us for a conversation that was recorded on Thursday, October 8th, about the various legal issues at play following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court, and the implications that both of these issues could have on the 2020 election and the cultural landscape of the United States in the years to come. And just to dovetail on the point I was trying to make about Roberts, and and, and I believe this is something you have said in some of your other discussions of this issue, Stan, is that his track record, Roberts, is guiding the court to make decisions for the good of the country, not necessarily for the good of, of the prevailing uh, party in power. Uh, Roberts seems to be a different kind of conservative. Uh, he is sort of a business-oriented uh, conservative Republican. And by that I mean he's not as socially conservative, it seems, in some of his opinions and others. One of the reasons why some scholars have concluded he voted, he was the deciding vote in upholding the Affordable Care Act in a 5-4 to vote, to the shock of some people that he sided with the liberals, was because the, the Affordable Care Act is actually good for business. Insurance companies are doing a nice, healthy business, thanks to Obamacare. And that, from Robert's point of view, meant that this, this was not a bad law. He didn't see anything wrong with it. And uh, when it returns to the court sometime next month, we'll, we'll see if if he still feels that way and whether the law has changed enough or, or whether this, there, if there is one extra vote on the court, that will be enough to shift it regardless of what he thinks. Again, not, not to sound like the current occupant of the White House, but I, we're going to have to stay tuned to see what, what, what comes up in the next couple of weeks. Oh, from hour to hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by Carter, right? I'm going off. Uh, no, no, no. She was, a, she was a Republican appointee, Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay. Uh, Carter actually um, never got a single appointment on the U.S. Supreme Court. So you see how the tie, ebb, and flow of the timing, yeah. historical accident, sometimes has such an effect. Nixon got four appointments. Carter did not get a single appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. Stan, do you believe that um, the position of Supreme Court justice, do you think there should be uh, term limits imposed on this? I've heard talk about that. Look, I don't have any question about that any longer. I mean, these, this was set up... 
I mean, I hate to draw the analogy to Social Security, but Social Security was set up at a time when it was typical for men to die at 60 or 65, so uh, it didn't seem like it was going to go on for very long. Now, of course, it needs more funding because people are, thank God, living longer. Yeah. Well, the same thing is true on the court. Oliver Wendell Holmes was just so famous for having lasted on the court till his late 80s. This was totally unique. Justices used to like the normal population of men, uh, which was true at the time, would be, would be dying, uh, you know, at 60 or 61 or 62 or maybe 65. Uh, that was the assumption. Or, in a rarity, like Justice Souter, who retired just a few years back, he decided, well, I'm 66, it's time for me to leave, and uh, just retired. Well, that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't happen much anymore. If, if, the, if the justice nominated by uh, President Trump gets to sit on the court, as certainly at this moment in time looks likely, She's 48. If she stays on the court until Ginsburg's age, she'll be on for 39 years. Uh, it brings she out the words of the great Justice Robert Jackson, who once said that the judiciary and the Supreme Court were a prior generation's lasting control on the present generation. So you're going to have these justices 40 years from now still imposing their views that they have right now when they're still young. So, it, it, yeah, it, but, but that would be difficult to do without a constitutional amendment, putting a term limit uh, through. That, that would be a difficult proposition. Tony? That's the first time I think I've seen a justice that is younger than me, uh, the potential justice that will be young. I mean, Kavanaugh's exactly my age. You like beer. But do you <laughs> like beer? <laughs> yeah, I, thought, I, thought, I, I could have done Kavanaugh as a Halloween costume. But we know so much about her right now, or at least what has been said about her. And they just had their, their super spreader announcement party uh, you know, last week. Yeah. Potential justices, has the country known as much about them like we know about her or like what we believe we know about her? Well, we certainly care more now. There were times when, you know, look, uh, many justices would go through unanimously or almost unanimous. Look at Bader Ginsburg. She, she went through almost without basically any discussion or, or oppose, and that was true also for various Republicans who, uh, you know, appointees that have gone through. Now we're scrutinizing this more. Every single vote counts. There are so many big issues up there that are, that are five to four votes uh, perhaps now, and that's going to change with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, absence. And by the way, I have to say that I was one of those people Ginsburg should have retired when Obama was first elected. There was a, a definite group of law professors who felt, look, she's in her mid-70s. She's been there for a long time. Uh, she ought to get off now while Obama can still replace her. And there, there was some word also suggesting about Breyer, but Breyer had not had the physical problems, was a few years younger than she and 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 she just basically laughed and said no I you know <laughs> I'm not that old I'm not I'm not done yet I have a lot of work to do and she did do very good work some of her best work in those in those next dozen years but the reality is as I said I I fear having been a fan of Justice Ginsburg that her death may overshadow her life we mentioned in our open stand that you've argued cases before the US Supreme Court did you cross paths did you argue any cases before Ginsburg, did you cross paths with her? Did you get no, to know? I, I, I've done very few cases in the last few years. When I was a young man, I, you know, I, I argued in front of the California Supreme Court and I uh, had cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, but I, I'm old enough to have argued in front of Marshall and Brennan <laughs> and, uh, and that group. So we're, we're, talking, we're talking my last Supreme Court a case was back in, it, it was so long ago that there were only eight justices because Kennedy had not yet been appointed. 
So there was a vacancy at the time. And since, we'd, well, since I was representing, as I always do, the indigent criminal defendant, which is the kind of work I would do, and we had won in the Ninth Circuit, and we were hoping if we just get a 4-4 split, that, uh, which is something that could occur if this next justice uh, is not, in fact, appointed in any reasonable period of time from now, uh, that the, the lower court opinion would stand, which we'd won, which would be the same thing here. If they don't get this Ninth Justice appointed uh, and uh, a case goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and it goes 4-4, it's whatever the, the next highest federal court had ruled or state court. It, it, would, just, it would just affirm the, uh, the lower court decision by a 4-4 vote. Tony Figueroa and Donna Allen are with us via Zoom, along with our guest, Stan Goldman. Stan Goldman, tenured law professor at Loyola Law School and longtime legal analyst for various radio, TV, and print outlets. Stan is providing us with some legal analysis of some of the various issues at play following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the implications these issues could have on both the 2020 presidential election and the cultural landscape of the United States in the years to come. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This conversation was recorded on Thursday, October 8th. When you were bringing up law and order a couple of topics back, are there any, par- you know, when you were talking about was it the, during Johnson's tenure, any parallels you see today? Or- well, sure. I, I think we saw this uh, during the... Uh, I mean, uh, uh, people think that Biden's numbers in the polls are insurmountable. I mean, I, I think if you go back exactly four weeks today, I think uh, Trump was probably losing by about the same number in the national polls to to Hillary Clinton. And also, if you go back far enough, you see that George Bush Sr. was losing quite heavily to Governor Dukakis. And then things changed. And one of the things that changed during the the, the Bush-Dukakis race back when was the law and order idea. The Republicans latched onto the fact that someone who had been paroled uh, when Dukakis was governor had gone out and committed horrible crimes after being paroled. And even though technically the governor didn't have anything to do with parole, it was on his watch. And this was the Willie Horton ads. That was the African-American parolee who went out and committed horrible crimes. It definitely was a campaign at that point tinged with some racism, with Willie Horton's picture everywhere, basically sending the message not quite as explicitly as I think is being sent now, which is, if you don't vote for me, you're going to get a guy in office who's going to set all these kinds of people loose in your suburbs, except now the unspoken is being spoken. So, uh, you know, the, the, what's old is new again. I mean, it's, it's not a, and, you know, crime rate has gone up slightly in the last few years, the last couple of years, and considerably in, with respect to some types of crimes and in some areas. Uh, the argument, of course, is from the Democrats' point of view, well, this was on your watch, Mr. President, so why are you blaming us and yeah. thinking we're going to cause any more of it? It, it, it went up after you became president. So uh, uh, it, it's a battle, and it, it's an issue that's still there and still of some concern and some considerable value. I think it's one way of potentially Trump getting back some of the senior citizens who have abandoned him because I think of COVID. So there's still basically almost from the time we're recording uh, just a little less than a month to the election. You don't quite know what's going to happen. Uh, the October surprise has turned out to be uh, Trump's contraction of, uh, of coronavirus, but uh, there may be another one or two still remaining in the quill. Yeah, and even Trump's contraction of the coronavirus hasn't played out yet. I mean, a lot can change by the time this program airs. 
Oh, yeah. If Trump were a relative of mine, I'd be telling him, just stay in. If, if, look, if my mother was involved in shit, she would just say, and this is the way she spoke, by the way, she said, are you crazy? Go back to bed. <laughs> just stay in bed. You got the fever. You're sick. Are you crazy walking around, going to the office? It can't invade. Yeah, that was that was my mother. Yeah, yeah and and Stan brings his mother to life in his wonderful uh, part part memoir, part uh, biography, part twentieth century history lesson. Uh, Left to the mercy of a rude stream, the bargain that broke, Adolf Hitler and saved my mother, which is available wherever books are sold through Potomac Books. Audio book, uh, audio version of Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream available through recorded books. And, and, and I got to say, because the story, as you described it earlier, does sound like a completely outlandish fiction, but it is not. I mean, I uh, it is a short book because I, I always, as a lawyer, have followed the words of that L.A. evangelist of a bygone era, Billy Sunday, who said no souls are saved after the first 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I, I I try to rate, make everything as concise as possible and short as possible. And, you, and one of the things you didn't mention was I, I worked for two and a half years for the New York Daily News as a as a as a correspondent as a journalist that was my title and uh, they published about 90 stories under my byline that I published about law and, and news about anything relating to law that's what my job was there and I I didn't write this book like a law professor I didn't write it like the articles I've written in my life had published in you know law journals about the efficacy of knock-and-announce laws, for example, which is something I've, I've written about. But this was written in the same style as I used to write those stories for the New York Daily News. I wanted 17- and 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds and, and people for whom English wasn't a first language to be able to read it and understand it and follow it. And, and the story may seem outlandish, but i got to tell you, I could have gotten other work. I could have done other things. I could have made some money writing briefs for law firms or doing the kind of work I like, which is representing uh, you know, indigent defendants either in trial or, or on appeal. But I decided to dedicate eight years of all of my spare time to putting together this book. And if it weren't true, I wouldn't have done it. It's not a fiction. It, it reads in part, and um, maybe that's a compliment. I've literally gotten emails from people who've gotten the book and read it and said, oh, Professor Goldman, I wanted to tell you how much I loved your novel. Well, it's not a novel. It just seems like one, because I, I think the most highfalutin, esoteric line I have in the book, uh, which I just had to include, was I concluded about my mother's escape that uh, for fiction to be believed, it must possess at least a modicum of plausibility. Truth is not so circumscribed. So, I mean, I thought about how to express that, and that's the way I thought I'd do it. It's just her, her survival and the way she was saved is so beyond belief that I just am, you know, afraid people won't understand it's completely true. So I, I documented with a quarter of the book or the end notes in back showing all the historical and memoirs that I used as my sources for, for the actual story. The, the research alone took me four years. I mean, I'm not kidding about that. And then it took me four years to blend the story of my mother and myself growing up with a mother who was, you know, PTSD and suffered so much uh, during the war and what it was like being the only child, the only surviving child of a, of a mother like that. I blended that in with her escape, her rescue, which actually I've been told now makes the book, you know, kind of unusual. Uh, there's, there doesn't seem to be another book like that out on the market or ever written. It kind of blends the war with this post-war life, and I sort of show how these things that happened to my mother during the war affected particular things she did 
you know, like always saving bread. She would freeze bread. We never had room in the freezer for uh, for ice cream or anything. When I was a teenager, I said, Mom, Mom, why do I have to have so much bread in the freezer? Can't even keep any ice cream in the house. I never get any ice cream. I have to go out and buy it. You know, what's, what's and then she paused for a second and said, eh, Stanley, when I was in Devoe and I was starving, I said to myself, if I ever get through this, I'm never going to be without bread. Man, I just couldn't. And and then she walked over the freezer, stood there for like two minutes, frozen, walked over the freezer, took all the bread out, threw it away, and never fro- froze bread again. And I told that story to a friend of mine once, from there was an uh, Oxford grad, and she said, "Well, wow, well, you really did her a favor. You exposed her phobia." And my answer was, "Well, maybe, but if that's true, how come 50 years later I still feel guilty about having asked?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. Uh, it, uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing, you know, so I, I, I track back, you know, my mother was always cold, because, you know, and her response story to people when they say, Mrs. Coleman, it's so warm outside today, it's the middle of summer in Los Angeles, why are you wearing a sweater? And she would say, I was cold for a very long time, and I never warmed up. And uh, she, I don't think, ever thought for a moment people didn't understand exactly what, what she meant, but they just thought she was revealing a kind of subtle sense of humor they hadn't expected. But no, she meant it. She was, she had frozen for years, and uh, this was her response. She was quite the wit sometimes. Uh, she had quite the acid wit, too, it's, uh, and that's, that's all in the book. Andy, you see a screenplay in the future. This is fascinating. Oh, well, you know, I, 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 I was so, I'm not, I'm not convinced I'm going to write anything else again. Eight years doing this, I mean... My friends for decades had, had, had always accused me of dyeing my hair uh, because it was dark and hadn't turned gray at all. And then I got to the part of the book where I had to talk about my relationship with my mother, and it took me six months to write it, and my hair turned gray during those six months. I mean, I got quite a bit of gray hair during those six months, and I stopped it, I put it away, and the gray hair obviously stayed, but no more of it came in. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was an emotionally difficult thing for me to get out. So, I don't know, I, I guess I might go back and maybe try to do something else with some of the topics. I just don't know if I'm ready yet. Well, when you're ready, you'll know. Left to the mercy of a rude stream, the bargain that broke Adolf Hitler and saved my mother by Stan Goldman, available in hardcover through Potomac Books, wherever books are sold. Audiobook of Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, available through recorded books. Stan, we'll be back at the end of our second hour. We'll talk some more about left to the mercy of a rude stream, including the many ways in which the book is very timely right now, given the political climate of today. Stan Goldman will be back at the end of our second hour. We hope you'll stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll take a quick time out, then we'll talk to our friend Jennifer Armstrong about one of the inspirations for both Mary Richards and Rhoda Morgenstern when we come back on TV Confidential. An adult elephant can weigh up to six tons. The average person, 150 pounds. Ever heard of carfentanil? It's a large wild animal tranquilizer. Illegal drug dealers lace heroin with it. It can kill the average human. If you or a loved one is addicted to opiates, even pain pills, don't wait until it's too late. Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline now. We care. Many of us have been where you are. We'll take you or a loved one away from the drug environment to a place you can clean out safely. Plus, we'll work with your insurance company to make sure you get the treatment you need. And with a Family Medical Leave Act, you're allowed by law to get away for help without telling your employer why. Call now to save a life. 866-490-3991-866-490-3991-866-490-3991. 
45 Years of the Rockford Files, revised third edition. The complete history of the Rockford Files on television, now completely updated with more than 20 new interviews, additional photographs, and a whole lot more. 45 Years of the Rockford Files, available now at rockford45.com, rockford45.com. Attention timeshare owners. This is an urgent consumer alert from the Timeshare Exit Hotline, a national company specializing in helping consumers legally get out of their expensive timeshare contract. Our experienced partners are offering you a way to legally get rid of your timeshare. You'll never pay another timeshare maintenance bill again, and all your obligations will be terminated. You can begin saving today. Even if you've tried another company to get rid of your timeshare, call and see if we can help you. At the Timeshare Exit Hotline, we only accept payment after an agreement has been made to get you out of your timeshare. Make this complimentary free call and learn how our honest partners can help anyone, anywhere, legally get out of their timeshare nightmare. 800-715-6093-800-715-6093-800-715-6093. That's 800-715-6093. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.